You are listening to WRFG Atlanta, 89.3 FM. Up next, Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. Hold on tight. And thank you so much for listening to WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM and welcome to Atlanta's Alternative Perspectives. This is our city's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting Atlanta's queer community. I'm your host, Greg Bosson, and uh, thank you for joining us tonight. And uh, a big thank you, by the way, to people that came by our booth this past weekend. It was the uh, annual Thanksgiving parade and festival that happened in the Little Five Points uh, uh, neighborhood over the past weekend. It was very cool. It's a motley crew of people that hang out and uh, are there. I mean, it's a colorful and exciting crew. We're one of them. We actually, uh, our offices are, and we broadcast live out of the Little Five Points Community Center uh, offices. So anyway, if you did not know that now you do but thank you for joining if you did come by the booth uh and tonight on the show um and this is really very cool we are going to be interviewing dr syed achan uh and dr achan achan is actually an associate professor of anthropology at emory university uh his research focuses on the LGBTQ issues in the Palestinian territories. He actually grew up in the West Bank uh, before coming to the States to go to the university, and he never left. Uh, But he knows a lot about what it's like to be gay in Palestine. And uh, so I'm really excited to talk to him, and I think that you will be too, or I think you should be too. But before we do that, News of the queer. Uh-uh. I know that's right. Oh, no, she didn't say what. And back with us this week is Alexa uh, from Georgia Equality. Hey, Alexa, how's it going? Hey, Greg, it's going well. Excuse my voice a little bit. Like I told you, I was a little bit tired, but I'm excited to be back. Oh, it doesn't oh. sound like you're tired. Oh, you don't hear it? Okay. No. I, I thought I felt it. I was like, oh, girl, frog. <laughs> <laughs> What do you got for us with news? Well, we have to start with giving some um, some honor and respect to Leslie Jordan. Uh. I remember stumbling across Will and Grace years ago before my parents would have ever let me watch that show because, you know, God bless him. Um, but he just was so wonderful. He yeah. was my favorite character. And then fast forward to now watching him. I follow him on TikTok, follow him on Instagram. And he really, really was that bright light, seemingly, that everybody described him as. So yeah, it made I me saw, really sad. Yeah, I saw him in a show here in Atlanta. Um, or at I guess it was called the 14th Street Playhouse at that mm-hmm. time. Uh, I saw his one-man show a few years ago, and he was oh, wow. absolutely was hilarious. Absolutely in a crash at 67 it's it's very yes. odd yes yeah. it it seemed it seemed really really odd and um out of nowhere it was shocking it was yeah, shocking definitely what else we got 
Nearly half of LGBTQ teens in Japan thought about suicide in the past year, says a survey that was taken there. Um, Many sexual minorities in Japan are experiencing mental suffering, and with nearly half of LGBTQ children and young people having thought about suicide in the past year, a recent survey has revealed. The survey conducted by Tokyo-based authorized nonprofit organization, Rebit, also found that one in seven LGBTQ youths aged aged between 12 and 19 are actually attempted, have actually attempted um, to harm themselves, kill themselves in the past year. The last study unveiled that LGBTQ individuals are hurt in everyday conversations, such as when parents refer to sexual minorities as those on that side and feel isolated as they cannot consult anyone. Um, so this goes, this story I'm out of Japan goes more into a lot of the statistics and things like that. But what I stumbled across that I thought it was important to discuss because we have extremely high numbers of children who, you know, LGBTQ children who have thought about suicide or have actually attempted. Um, Almost half? That's amazing. Yeah, so that was it. So almost half in Japan, right? That that was high. But I pulled some statistics from the Trevor Project who worked directly with LGBTQ youth and suicide. Um, And they say that suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people aged 10 to 24 in the LGBTQ community. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is that not wild? Well, no, it says that's the second leading uh, uh, cause among um, all age children, 10 to 24. And then it's at higher for LGBTQ youth. Um, but when I saw that, it blew my mind. That's so scary. It yeah. says that LGBTQ youth are more than four times more like more than four times likely to attempt suicide than their peers. That's astronomical. Yeah, no. And it's what's so sad about it. Well, first of all, just stop to say that um, it's especially high in Japan. I mean, that's incredible. Almost half homosexuality is legal in Japan. Uh, There are no explicit religious prohibitions against uh, homosexuality. Uh, however, obviously, it's not something that is um, widely accepted in uh, the country. Uh, marriage is is illegal. Uh, uh, same sex marriage is is um, still illegal there. Um, there, uh, same sex couples are not allowed to adopt either. Um, but the thing I just wanted to point out is that when you hear something like this, suicide rates in another country, um, and you think to yourself, "Well, gosh, how?" How would we get suicide rates or the um, uh, or thinking of suicide? How do we get that down uh, amongst the LGBTQ queer youth community? And that would be by helping them to feel like it's OK to be gay and it's OK to be trans. You know, and how would you do that? Well, you would um, have um, uh equality signs in the schools, you know, you would have clubs um, where, you know, you could openly discuss it. You would have books, literature, movies showing same-sex couples that are happy in the schools. This is the exact kind of thing that the law in Florida is seeking to stop, uh, and it's having an effect, and this is Ron DeSantis's law, and he will be running for president in 2024. So um, I just think we need to keep this in context. Uh, It's horrific. It really is. 
Um, I'm so sad to hear that. Um, yeah. But anyway, and the Trevor Project, we did have somebody on the show a couple, three weeks ago from the Trevor Project. Uh, and they're doing some amazing stuff to help kids both both on the phone and uh, online. So I would encourage anybody uh, that wants to, uh, to look up the Trevor Project online. Um, yeah, we love them. They're yeah. the best. They're yeah. so great. What else do we have? Well, you brought up Florida, so you must have been reading my mind, Greg. Um, Anti-LGBTQ activists will train Florida's public school librarians on which books to ban. Um, The administration of Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis is using the state's Department of Education to create um, a, quote, parent work group consisting of right-wing book-banning activists. The work group will train public school librarians on how to follow censorship rules signed into law by DeSantis earlier this year. An August 12th memo from Education Department Senior Chancellor Jacob Oliva gave local K-12 schools a week to nominate, quote, parents of students to participate in the work group. The work group will train school librarians on how to review book collections within individual teachers' classrooms, a measurement to keep potentially inclusive texts out of students' hands. In its search for work group members, the department reportedly, quote, passed on nearly 100 potentially qualified applicants with relevant experience, um, according to records review conducted by the Daily Beast. And then there's a quote, the Brevard County alone, it ignored the five submissions made by the bipartisan local school board, including the nomination of a former elementary school assistant principal, the director of Eastern Florida State Colleges, tutoring centers, and the administrator of a local scholarship fund, the aforementioned politician publication wrote. So it goes on a little bit more to talk about this, but he's he's in the process. He's putting together a um, seemingly a right-winged conservative work group to mm-hmm. decide to, to train and tell librarians what they can and can't say and what they can have in their libraries. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, today's version of book burning basically which you know you hear book burning and you're like yeah that's got to be bad but you know you talk to people today that are on the right that you know feel as though uh you know it's their right as a parent to control what their what their kids read which i get keeping it out of the library altogether seems a little bit ridiculous um you know putting it somewhere and having to get permission from a parent in order to check it out or read it, that sounds like a nice middle-of-the-road solution. Although <laughs> kids that have parents that are not approving or that, you know, they don't want to share with them. I mean, it's a problem. It, it's, mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know what you do if you have a parent that is, um, uh, you know, just extremely homophobic and you're gay trying to come out. That parent's not going to be okay with that. So there needs to be safe places for people to go and it sounds like we're trying to take it out of the schools so yeah yeah i'm gonna do my shameless plug that we're early voting is happening right now yes and um saturday we have another saturday voting coming up this weekend statewide but i say that because um we can't get too comfortable Ron DeSantis was able to do this because he had the power to do it because of the position that he holds and the position of folks, um, the people who are sitting in, you know, the state legislature. 
um, right now. And so this election, I think, is more crucial than anyone can even imagine. Right. Mm-hmm. So if the right gets the seats in Congress and, the, and gets the seats at the state legislature, we're going to go in absolutely one direction. And if the Democrats take control and have it, um, it will go in another direction. And so I let you know, do with that what you will. But um, this is the point where you get to decide if more states are going to have these kinds of bans coming in the next year or not. Yeah. You know, so- it's that literal. And I was just looking um, because it is one of the answers. uh, One of the responses to this is to make sure that you vote. Um, And so we have early voting now. I've already voted. Um, I voted at the at the library, not the school library, but the library that is on um, uh, Ponce de Leon Road, kind of up the street from the Kroger. Uh, And um, it's you say that it's 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 it looks like. Is it just the weekends? I didn't know that. Is it just the weekends? No. So um, it's it's been it's going it's been going on since the seventeenth all through the week, but they offer two weekends, two Saturdays for the entire state to be open for folks who can't vote during the week. Okay. So if you're somebody that has to work and you don't can't get off in time to go after work or during work during the week, your opportunity to vote is going to be Saturday. So okay. if you know you can't go during the week, that means you've got to plan to go this Saturday to an early voting site. OK. Um, and can anybody vote in any early site or do you have to pick the one that's in the county that you're in? Don't quote me. What okay. I will say is go to the um, state of Georgia's My Voter page. Um, just type in My Voter. Um, okay. in a web browser and typing information, it'll give you all the sites that you are allowed to go to. Cause I don't want to tell somebody yes and they get, and they get turned away. Cool. Um, and bring, Cause things and bring, are weird now. Things are weird. Oh yeah. And bring an ID with you. Bring a photo ID in the photo ID does not have to be your actual Georgia residence. It just needs to be a valid ID, meaning your face, your name, driver's license. It doesn't have to be Georgia. Okay. That's another thing. People, a lot of people don't know that. It just got to be something that can identify you that is a legitimate ID. Sounds good. Sounds yeah. good. All right. We got time for uh, one more little thing. If you have something else, I don't know. Do you? I do. We're going to just do so in on something happy. Yes. Um, so <laughs> dance show in Mexico highlights sexual diversity. Um, Guadalajara, Mexico. Um, October 22nd, LGBTQ dance company Mexico de Colors presented a show in the Mexican city of Guadalajara on Saturday to highlight discrimination, transphobia, and pride in sexual identity. A total of 17 dancers gave life to 13 dance pieces combining traditional dance styles in cabaret with Mexican mischievousness, Black humor, and a message of tolerance toward the LGBTQ community. The all-male dancers took a trip to all corners of the country to music of different music of dancers, different styles, including um, San Jorocco, a Mexican folk music style from um, Veracruz, traditional Piripe music, the Jaharaba Tapito, and and some others. One of the pieces <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, don't speak Spanish anymore. Never sounded good doing it. So sorry. <laughs> oh you get the point, God. Greg. I do. Um, I get the point. 
They were dancing in Mexico. They were dancing in Mexico. And the story just goes on to talk about the joy and their intention in having this and being able to celebrate. And it is a big deal to be able to have a show like this in Mexico. I know that for a fact. They're really they're relatively conservative. So yes, um, yes. Though I heard that is changing. I heard yes. that a, that people are moving to Mexico who are queer and having a good time. So yes. that makes me happy. Yes, isn't isn't it? Is marriage legal there now? I thought it was. Maybe I'm it wrong. is. Yeah. Oh my god, it is. Yeah, yeah. it is. So, is. all right. Well, that yeah. uh, that is awesome. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. We will be right back where we're going to talk with Dr. Syed uh, Achan. Sorry about that. friends is uh mascara uh by uh bashar murad who is a uh, palestinian uh and uh this he's also openly queer and uh this particular song is very popular and very cool actually and it makes me think that i need to start i need to start showcasing some uh, lgbtq queer songs from around the world i should do one of those every week i think that would be really cool but anyway Welcome back to WRFG Atlanta 89.3 FM on your dial. Um, it is Tuesday night and it is Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only local radio hour devoted exclusively to issues affecting the queer community. I'm your host, uh, Greg Bosson. And thank you so much for joining. Uh, the weather has just, I don't know, I know I already said it, but the weather is just amazing to me. Anyway, uh, so tonight's show, uh, our guest tonight, and this is why I played uh, this song from uh, a Palestinian artist. Uh, our guest tonight is Dr. Saed Achan, uh, and Saed is currently an associate professor of anthropology at Emory University. His research is currently focused on contemporary Palestinian society and politics, uh, Christian minorities in the Middle East, and the global LGBTQ uh, movements, social movements that are happening around um, the, the world. He's also the author. Uh, he's also an author, and he has uh, two books in particular uh, that deal with queer issues. One of them is Real Gender, Palestinian and Israeli Cinema, and, and um, the other one is Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique, and both deal with gender and sexuality. Um, as it relates to the 
I keep wanting to say Palestine, uh, but um, uh, Syed, um, uh, go ahead and unmute yourself because I think you're muted. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, you were being nice. Uh, thank you, Syed. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, thanks so much for having me, Greg. It's such an honor, and I really look forward to our discussion. Mm-hmm. And and I noticed you nodding when I said that I wanted to stay, say Palestine instead of the Palestinian authorities. So I think I'm going to do that as we go through. Um, awesome. Yeah, no, yeah. I was just muted, you know, doing the music and everything. Mm-hmm. So, by the way, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I think it's a great idea to showcase queer music from around the world on your show. And thanks so much for... Um, you know, hosting the show, it, it really is a huge service to the queer community in Atlanta and beyond. Well, I think uh, in particular, people are interested, and I know I am, um, at uh, what it's like to be queer in um, different areas uh, of uh, the world. So uh, the first thing I just wanted to let uh, individuals know, so um uh, the majority of Palestinians uh, are Muslims, so I did want to discuss what the religion is in uh, the Palestinian authorities, including those uh, that are living overseas. Um, all residents in the Palestinian territories are required to declare a religion on an identification card uh, used by the Israeli government, and according to this record, 98% of Palestinians identify themselves as Sunni Muslims. So before we even get to, um, well, I guess I, I guess this is a good lead in. I did want to discuss what are the types, what are the governments that run the Palestinian authorities? Um, do they consider themselves a republic? Is it a theocracy? Um, how do they identify themselves uh, in the Palestinian territories? Yeah, Greg, you know, first of all, you mentioned the question of religion. Um, So in 1948, when the state of Israel was established in what was Palestine at the time, uh, Palestinians were about 20% Christian, uh, so the Palestinian Christian, you know, Arab Christian minority, and the rest uh, Muslim. But then uh, as a result of the displacement of Palestinians, many, many Christians have left. And so as a result, now in Palestine, Christians make up only 2% of the population because most Christians have left as a result of the Israeli occupation and the political and economic conditions. But in the diaspora and diasporic Palestinian communities, you know, Christians continue to play a disproportionate role in Palestinian society and politics. But even among those who identify as Christian or Muslim, uh, many also identify as secular or atheist. But you're right that on your identification card from the Palestinian Authority and for the Israeli authorities, you do need to actually identify with the religion. And the second question you asked was about the Palestinian governments. Um, And this is kind of similar to the Native American reservations here in the United States. You know, no two contexts are ever identical, and they're not. You know, the Native American and the Palestinian context have a lot of critical differences and distinctions. But there are also a lot of parallels in terms of being an indigenous community and having a settler colonial process that for decades leads to displacement, disenfranchisement, displacement. So Native Americans live, you know, many of them in these Native American reservations that are, you know, densely populated or not. And the Native authorities or governments have very, very limited sovereignty in those regions because they continue to live under U.S. 
sovereignty. And the same applies to Palestinians. We live, you know, I, I live in the U.S. now in Atlanta, as you mentioned, but uh, I grew up in Palestine. Many of my family still live there. So Palestinians in Palestine live under Israeli occupation and Israeli sovereignty. But there's this limited authority that Palestinians have. So in the Gaza Strip, which remains under Israeli control in many, many ways, there is a local government, which is Hamas, which is an Islamist uh, group that is the sort of uh, governing body that represents Palestinians there. And in the West Bank, there is Fatah, F-A-T-A-H, which is the more secular Palestinian political party that has authority for Palestinians in the West Bank. So I know it's a little bit complicated, uh, but I hope that that was clear. No, it is. And, and the question I come, it makes me wonder. And, and first of all, I think Hamas is, according to the United States government, is still considered a terrorist organization, but they are certainly um, also a functioning government, I believe, if, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, providing services. But these two, um, these two governmental Ent- uh, entities, uh, both in the West Bank and Gaza, are they linked in any way? Do they work together, or, or, are there, or is, there, is there any sort of authority or a voting authority over the two of them or between them? How does that work at this point? Yeah, you know, I personally am not a supporter of Hamas, nor am mm-hmm. I a supporter of Fatah. I'd say about a third of Palestinians support one, a third of Palestinians support the other. Those are the two major Palestinian political parties, but about a third of Palestinians are independents, and I identify as an independent. And it is correct that the U.S. government and the Israeli government do classify Hamas as a terrorist organization. Um, but and it, the question of terrorism is really fascinating because oftentimes terrorism is defined as political violence that's committed by non-state actors. But at the same time, we know that states can also engage in terrorist activity and you know, terrorize civilian populations and often at a disproportionate level. And so many Palestinians feel that what they experience from the Israeli state is a form of state-sponsored terrorism. So I think the question of terrorism is very, very fraught. And I think it's a really, really important one to, to discuss with nuance. So I appreciate your raising that point. Now, Fatah and Hamas are rival political parties. And like I said, one is Islamist in its orientation. It supports the use of violence and armed resistance to achieve uh, liberation and self-determination for the Palestinian people from Israeli military occupation. And Fatah is a sec- more secular in its orientation, uh, and they support you know, diplomacy and negotiations with Israel and the United States to try to achieve an end to the Israeli occupation. So they really are rivals. And because we are in a colonial context, um, the Israeli authorities actually foster and cultivate those divides and divisions. You know, there's the classic, you know, saying of, you know, when it's easier to conquer and, you know, a population. Divide and conquer. Yeah, when you divide them. So this is, Mm -hmm. you know, part of the political strategy. Absolutely. The way that you describe it, and we will get to the the, uh, queer uh, and, you know, the LGBTQ aspects of this, but it's just fascinating to me the way that you describe these two parties, it's almost as if they're, you know, two political parties, much like Republicans and Democrats or something. But it's more than that because they also have control over two different areas of the same country, if we call Palestine a country. Um, but these areas aren't connected. So um, geographically, they're not connected. There's space between them. And one wonders, you know, how possible is it to have a country that is not 
connected, you know, but it, it's just an interesting, I just wanted to make note of that to a certain extent, it's like a political party, but they also control two completely different areas. So, um, yeah, so the, there's definitely the geographic, mm-hmm. you know, divide, the political divide, but also their control in those territories is also very, very, very limited. And Israel maintains the overall control. Gotcha. So it controls the borders, the seaports, it controls the population registry, the identification cards that you just referred to. It controls the economy, the currency. We use the Israeli shekel. We don't have our own currency. Palestine is not a state. Palestinians are a stateless people who don't have citizenship and live under Israeli military occupation. So so it is it they so it's true Hamas and Fatah do have some level of authority and control over these territories, but it's very, very limited and it's derivative and it's within an overall context of Israeli control. So moving moving from that, um because this kind of puts this in uh uh it puts this in context now that we understand that, you know, technically Israel is running the show. Um, but there are laws regarding that are currently in place in the Palestinian territories regarding LGBTQ people. And um, I'm just going to read this. Same, same sex were decriminalized in the Jordanian, Jordanian controlled West Bank back in 1951 and remains so to this day. So in the West Bank, um, uh, it is not illegal to be queer. Um, whereas in the Gaza Strip, um, that is still technically under, um, there's a British mandated criminal code ordinance, number 74 in 1936. And this technically remains on the books and continues to outlaw same-sex acts between men. Uh, so it's, but what I'm hearing you say is ultimately Israeli's law is what rules, but are people still being jailed or persecuted in i guess it would be in the gaza strip in particular um for being queer is that happening right now yeah that law is on the books in gaza in the gaza Mm -hmm. strip and it was inherited from the british as we've talked about in the west bank there is no current law on the books and the question of law is is also complicated because there are a whole bunch of laws that Palestinians are have to live under. So they do live under Palestinian authority laws, whether under Hamas or Fatah depends on if you're in Gaza or the West Bank. Um, and being queer in Hamas is in Gaza is very difficult because of Hamas's homophobia, uh, which is you know I, I really my heart goes out to the queer community in Gaza um, and and to all parts of the world where there's conservatism and patriarchy and homophobia, um, but the, but also Palestinians live under, because we live under military occupation and Israeli military law, that, that law also goes into effect. Um, but the Israelis do not have any laws, you know, criminalizing homosexuality, but they do, the Israeli authorities do entrap since the 1980s Palestinians to serve as informants and collaborators and spies for Israel against their own community. So they, they threaten people they've been doing this since the 1980s and you either work with us as a spy or we will out you to your family and your community now my family is very loving and supportive but if you come from a family that's not it can put your you know life in in jeopardy and put you in a very precarious position so you're saying it's it's if you're a queer person in gaza you run the risk of being taken by the israeli authorities and being forced to either become a spy or we're going to out you. 
Yeah, or in the West Bank too. I mean, this is, it's been a practice that I write about in you know, my book and that's been documented since the 1980s that continues through the present. It's the targeting of LGBTQ Palestinians by the Israeli security services. So obviously, if they're able to use that um, in order to coerce people to become informants, then um, that must say something about what it's like to be uh, gay in these two places. Absolutely. um, And it exacerbates homophobia within Palestinian society, because then homosexuality and collaboration becomes sort of seen as synonymous in many ways, which jeopardizes people's lives even further. All right. Well, I'm going to reintroduce you. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Syed Atshan, um, Atshan uh, who is an associate professor of anthropology at Emory University. Uh, and he obviously is focused on uh, Palestinian and Middle East issues, but specifically issues around uh, LGBTQ of movements around the world and in uh, Palestine. And we will be right Hello? Hi, I'm calling about the two-bedroom apartment you advertise. Is it still available? Sure. Great. Unless you're black or Latino or disabled. Housing discrimination is rarely this obvious, but it's just as real and just as illegal. So if you hear things like, I can't assign you a handicapped parking space. That could be housing discrimination. The only way to stop it is to report it so we can investigate it. If you think you have been a victim of housing discrimination, Metro Fair Housing Services may be able to help. The number is 404-524-0000. Fair housing is your right. This has been another public service announcement brought to you by your listener-sponsored and supported Community Radio, 89.3 FM, WRFG.org. And that's Bashar Murad, uh, who is a Palestinian singer and is a uh, out and uh, queer. Uh, welcome back to Alternative Perspectives, Atlanta's only queer radio hour. I am your host, uh, Greg Bosson, and we are speaking to Dr. Saed Achan uh, about the state of uh, Palestine, in Palestine, what it's like uh, to be gay. So I guess I, I wanted to ask a little bit more about this. So you grew up in um, the the uh, the West Bank, then I assume is that right? Correct. All right. Okay. And so it's fair to say is 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 it is it a different experience being gay in Gaza versus uh, the West Bank because of um, Hamas in Gaza and their attitudes towards homosexuality or um, would you say it's much more tough to grow up in Gaza? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the situation in Gaza for the LGBTQ community is is incredibly heartbreaking and, and devastating. 
what's it like there? If you, I mean, how would you describe that? Are there gay bars in Gaza or at oh, all? Oh, no, no. I mean, if you're queer in Gaza, you are living in fear and you are in hiding and you are just praying that you will not be discovered. So there's no way, I think, there's no other way to describe what people are experiencing there. It's, it's absolutely horrific. And so I would imagine that if you're in Gaza, then you'd want to move to the West Bank, where at least it's a little better. Is that something that's easy to do or not? No, I mean, um, Israel restricts travel between Gaza and the West Bank. So for Palestinians, it's incredibly difficult. It's almost impossible to get a permit, which you need from the Israeli authorities, to be able to travel between those two territories. Wow. Okay, so if you wanted to move, you'd have to have a really good reason and you would have to get approval. Yes, and it's almost never granted. Yeah, it's on very, very rare circumstances is it granted. I wonder why it is that there's such a bent towards trying to keep them separated. I guess in your view, it's part of the whole Israeli divide and conquer strategy. Absolutely. You keep them geographically divided and politically divided and therefore weakened and, and you're able to control and dominate the populations even more. So um, what was life growing up like in, um, in the West Bank? For you? Well, first of all, when did you discover that you were gay? When did you decide or come out? How did that work in being in the West Bank? I mean, I think some of my earliest memories were of, uh, you know, being in school. I went to the Ramallah Friends School, which is a Quaker school established in Palestine in the 1800s. And I remember uh, we had a school trip and the boys were on one bus and the girls were on another bus. Um, and the boys were circulating this pornographic magazine. And um, they, I noticed they were getting very excited, and I was not. So I knew that I was different. <laughs> yeah. I knew that there was, I knew there were, I was like, there's something, okay, not, you know, there's something off. But I didn't have the conceptual toolkit or the vocabulary to really make sense of it. And I knew that there was this kind of normative masculinity in my society that, I could never, ever, you know, even aspire to. So I channeled all of my efforts in, you know, being a nerd and being, you know, the first in my class and student body president and, you know, getting lead roles in theater. And I was overcompensating. And this is a theme that resonates with so many queer people, you know. But, but it was after moving to the U.S. And, and being here, you know, being in college that I actually discovered, oh, my gosh, you know, there's a community, there's 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 language for this i'm not the only one and so i was able to sort of deal with my internalized homophobia accept who i am find a sense of community share this with my family and i'm so blessed that my family has been very loving and supportive from the beginning oh okay so that was that's what my next question was going to be so your family did they grow up um sunni or were they secular were they not religious um how yeah, were you I raised mean, my- yeah, so my family is um, really secular, and I grew up, like I said, you know, in the West Bank. And like I said, I also was able to go to this Quaker school, which uh, is, you know, the Quaker community is so open and, and wonderful and progressive on so many issues. And there's the notion of the light of God in every human being. So there's that kind of real acceptance of difference and celebration of difference. So I was very, very privileged and very, very blessed to be able to have this environment. Okay, so yeah, and I, I missed that, forgive me, but obviously, so Quakers, you are, um, you grew up uh, as, well, and is Quaker a religion, would you say? Yes, yes. Yeah, so Quakers are a religious community, um, they're in the U.S. and all around the world, mm-hmm. I identify as a Quaker, 
And uh, in, in Palestine, there's a small Quaker community, and most uh, Quakers converted to Quakerism from Orthodox Christianity. Um, so the most Christians in Palestine, the largest denomination, are Orthodox Christians. But since the 1800s, there have been a number of Palestinian Orthodox Christian families who converted to Quakerism. So Quakerism is, an, you know, is a branch of Christianity in many ways, uh, but it's, ju it's just much more egalitarian than Orthodox Christianity, which has you know, patriarchy and homophobia much more entrenched in the um, Orthodox Church. So, in, uh, so I know you were saying that in the Gaza Strip, if you were gay, if you're gay or queer, you basically uh, have to just hope that you don't get killed or hurt or arrested and just not really, I guess, keep any relationships separate. So there's probably not any gay bars there. No. Um, but are there in the West Bank? So there are queer, you know, hangout spots and queer friendly spaces in the West Bank. And there are also LGBTQ organizations that LGBTQ Palestinian civil society organizations that provide, you know, workshops and services and spaces for people to come together. But the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank sometimes harasses them, which is really unfortunate. Uh, but overall, they're able to function without harassment. But every now and then the Palestinian Authority has this whole spectacle of like, oh, look, you know, we are we're also moral, you know, we're also, uh, you know, cracking down on this, on these, you know, on these individuals. So I don't want to, you know, I don't want to overstate the ability of queer Palestinians to organize and come together for socializing, for, for uh, political organizing, etc. There are challenges that they face in the West Bank, um, but there's much more space for civil society and on a grassroots level and a private level way more than there is in the Gaza Strip, for sure. And and what about in Israel proper, then? I mean, what what are the attitudes? I'm, I'm, I'm noticing a, it doesn't look like marriage, same-sex marriage is legal in Israel at this point. Uh, there's a civil marriage, but not a... I'm, I'm not, it doesn't look like it's legal at this point. Yeah, so I'm Israel happy. does not... Does, you know, you cannot have a same-sex marriage in Israel proper, but... What they do allow is if you get married abroad and then you return, then they will recognize uh, the, you know, the, the marriage once you come back. But you can't get married actually in the country. And within Israeli society, there are deep divides between the religious and the secular in terms of political orientations. A number of you know, religious fundamentalists who want a theocratic state and then those who are you know, very secular in their orientation. And so the former will espouse homophobia and will try to fight the queer movement and fight legislation for rights or anti-discrimination policies for the queer community. But then a lot of the secular folks are ma making some advances, actually, in LGBTQ rights in Israel. But it's very contested. It's very, very controversial. And Israeli society is having to grapple with these questions in very real ways. That's that's interesting. I guess I'm just I'm wondering also because I know this is certainly happening uh, here in the United States, um, not as much with uh, the queer community as with the trans community, but it's really happening with both. And what I'm talking about here in the United States, um, issues around the queer community and um, having acknowledgement in school around it. Um, it's kind of being used as a, um, a weapon, I guess. We're being used as pawns now in order to further the rights, uh, you know, the political rights hold on um, power. 
Uh, you know, it's bad to be gay. Look at what the Democrats are doing around this, and we need to stop it. And I'm wondering if Hamas does the same uh, as a way to push back against Israel uh, and more, uh, you know, like we have the moral authority here. Islam is the right religion. Sunni is the right religious. And we need to get away from the West, get away from Israel. I'm just wondering if that's what they do. Um, if that's Oh, I, yeah, I definitely. There are Hamas, you know, officials who use homophobic discourse and they basically argue, you know, oh, look, you know, Israel allows, for example, the gay pride parade in Tel Aviv, etc. This is another sign of how, you know, morally, uh, you know, uh, problematic they are and how morally superior we are, etc., which makes the lives of LGBTQ Palestinians even more difficult because, you know, they don't support Israeli settler colonialism overwhelmingly. They don't support Israel's system of oppression over Palestinians, both straight and queer, but uh, but homosexuality gets associated with this kind of Western colonial project. And LGBTQ activists have to work really, really hard to, to demonstrate we're part of society, we're part of the social fabric, we, are, we, we, are, we love our families, we love our communities, we belong here, and please stop you know, harassing us, and please stop vilifying us and dehumanizing us. We have rights just like everybody else. Right. No, that, that makes perfect sense. It's... Uh... That's really confusing. I would imagine that's really confusing. And it reminds me of um, back uh, in um, Germany when the, uh, before the wall came down and there was East Germany and West Germany. And uh, in um, West Germany, uh, because they were trying to be anti-Russian, uh, they um, uh, part of the laws at that time uh, – made homosexuality all right there were the russian way of doing things i guess they 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 didn't push against homosexuality in eastern europe and so in western europe it was actually more difficult to be gay i mean in western germany it was more difficult to be gay than in eastern germany before the wall came down for the same reason uh the, the, anything that was associated with russia was thrown away including uh laws that made homosexuality legal so um, one th- one other thing I did want to point out, because this we see this around the world, is although uh, the law is um, in Gaza, uh, the ordinance is that homosexuality is uh, Ill- illegal. It's only for men. Uh, it's same-sex acts between women are legal throughout um, Palestine, correct? And I wondered if you could speak to why that is. I know it's confusing to people what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think basically there are misunderstandings about female sexuality and sexuality, especially, you know, lesbian relationships, et cetera, and this kind of, um, you know, association of sexuality with a particular kind of, you know, penetration and, you know, there has to be a penis involved, et cetera. I think oftentimes folks uh, are, unfortunately, just there isn't a lot of knowledge about female sensuality and sexuality and the way, the different ways that women can have sex, you know, with each other. Um, as well. So I think that there's a long way to go in terms of acknowledging and celebrating female sexualities in all of their various forms. In other words, two women can't have sex because there's no penis. And that's why <laughs> they don't have to worry about making it illegal. <laughs> exactly. And also no worries yeah. about impregnation, etc. 
yeah yeah no that makes that makes perfect sense that makes perfect sense so um let's do turn our attention in the time we have left to the trans community there so what is it like to be um i guess non-binary or trans uh in the palestinian authority is that what is that like well trans people we know are his you know they've always existed and and across time and in every society but within palestinian society it's very very hard to be gender non-conforming non-binary trans especially because it's such a patriarchal society such a traditional and conservative society and there's such a strict gender binary you know even the arabic language has a very strict masculine form and a feminine form form and you have to sort of conform accordingly uh, so if you are deep down inside you know that you you don't identify with either category or you want to be, you know express yourself differently it's very very hard to actually realize that so the the trans community is very small the non-binary community is very, very small. There are people who do express themselves and do live into that, but they remain a very, very small minority and they remain incredibly courageous. I think those are some of my heroes in the world, the people who claim that and claim that unapologetically. My, I have so much admiration for those folks. Yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of uh, courage to do that. Um, so do you... Um, are there organized movements, organized uh, queer um, organizations in uh, in the Palestinian uh, territories at this point? Yes. And if there so, are what some... are what are are there a couple that you might mention to people where they could go and find out more about it? Absolutely. The two major queer Palestinian organizations are Al Qaws, A L Q A W S, which means rainbow in Arabic, and Aswat, A S W A T which means voices in Arabic. Al-Qaus includes, you know, many, many folks. Aswat is focused on women. It's, you know, it sees itself very strongly as a feminist, queer Palestinian organization. Oh, wow. Okay. And they can, I, I assume there's websites so we can go. They both have websites, correct. All right. All right. And then I know that you've done, uh, you've got two books. Um, you've done, well, you have four books, I think, actually, that you've written. Um I've published two books, and I have a third, which will be published any day now, and then a fourth in the pipeline. Oh, okay. All right. And so I guess what what message do you have? Like, what is it that you are trying to do or accomplish? Or maybe uh, what theory do you have around this issue of being queer in um, a traditionally Muslim uh, um, area like this, or in Palestine in particular? So in my book, Queer Palestine and the Empire of Critique, which you mentioned very kindly at the beginning in your intro, uh, was published in 2020 with Stanford University Press. And my basic, basic argument in the book is that the struggle for national liberation, uh, for Palestinian national liberation against Israeli colonialism and occupation, and the struggle for, for queer liberation, so the struggle within Palestinian society against sexism and, and patriarchy and homophobia. These are equally important struggles. They are equal priorities. They can't be divorced or disentangled, and they are inextricably linked. So I'm sort of pushing back against those who argue that there's a hierarchy, that you know, national liberation should be prioritized over queer liberation, that queer liberation is not as salient, etc. Um, and, and I show in the book that the Palestinian queer movement is in many ways where the Palestinian feminist movement was some decades ago. The feminists, and many of us identify still as feminists, but the feminist movement 
debated this issue, what comes first, the, the liberation of the nation or the liberation of the woman? And they've reached near consensus that the two struggles are equal. You can't expect women to wait for national liberation before they can call for their rights. And that applies to the queer community as well. We have the right to organize and to call for uh, rights and for our bodily dignity and integrity and all of that, and, and to wage that struggle as we also wage the struggle against occupation at the same time. Yeah, and I, I, and this kind of speaks to what we were talking about before, where you have people that are um, staunch supporters of, you know, um, of uh, becoming a state in and of yourself and to fight against a colonial colonialism but some of these people that are so the strongest proponents of that are also also anti anti-queer uh and so that becomes uh that becomes really challenging so your your thesis i guess your idea is that it's important that i, I did want to look at that just a minute before we end your thesis the idea is that um they're inextricably linked uh these two ideas and that we really can't have one without the other. And I wonder how you, what that means uh, for you in, in practical terms. I mean, I, I, the first thing that comes to my mind is that there's a whole population here of people, many of whom don't have children, that uh, have the ability to spend time, energy, and efforts on the fight, um, that you don't want to exercise those people out of the community. I don't know if that's a point you make in the book, but it's something that I thought of. Um, yeah, no, I don't make that point, but I think mm-hmm. that that's a really that's a really compelling point. And I just think, you know, the biggest evidence for this is the fact that we exist. You know, um, un- you know, contrary to what the homophobes say or want, uh, many of us exist. We are fabulous. We, you know, we want to be visible. We are unapologetic about who we are, and we are simultaneously Palestinian and queer. And those two things make up who we are at the same time. Our bodies exist, you know, on the ground. And as a result, the systems of oppression that we face exist at the same time. And our resistance exists at the same time. So just by being ourselves and just by being fabulous, that is a form of agency. That is a form of resistance. And what's great, especially with young people, is that increasingly they refuse to be silenced. And I, I really admire that, especially about the rising generations. Yeah. Do you know if there's anybody that's in uh, any sort of political or any sort of position of power, probably more so in the West Bank uh, than in uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, that has come out as gay? Is there anybody that holds any sort of office at all? Um, I know some people who have been in influential roles in Palestinian politics who uh, have come out privately, you know, to their mm -hmm. colleagues, to their families, to their friends, but not necessarily, you know, like going full out, you know, in, in a really, really like large scale visible way. Uh, but but what we, where we see that visibility increasingly is in the spheres of the arts. Like you mentioned Bashar Murad and his music, this queer Palestinian pop singer who's really gifted uh, in academia and human rights organizations, civil society. Uh, more and more folks are identifying as queer openly. So what is your hope for... Um... What sort of action do you want to inspire, I guess? What are you hoping that people will do um, as a result of uh, perhaps reading the books or learning about your teachings, um, both inside the Palestinian territories as well as around the world? What are you hoping that people should or would do? Well, I hope we move closer towards self-love where queer people will, you know, can overcome any internalized homophobia and learn to embrace and 
celebrate who they are, who we are, that we can build a sense of community and solidarity with one another, that we can continue to organize and contribute to social movements for queer liberation in Palestine, for national liberation, and that people of conscience all around the world will join the Palestinian human rights struggle supporting um, the, the human rights of the Palestinian people, um, as well as supporting LGBTQ rights around the world. And hopefully that we get to a day where Israelis and Palestinians live together as equals and as neighbors, and that queer folks and straight folks in Palestine, Israel, uh, in these societies can live as, as equals as well. So my vision is one of peace, of justice, and of equality for all humans in Palestine, Israel, and all around the world. So um, as we leave here, the, you know, this show is streamed around the globe, and it's also up on alternate, uh, on a podcast called Alternative Talk. So if there's somebody that's living in the West Bank or knows somebody that's living there, what message do you want to send to that person? Do you want that person to come out publicly? What do you want well, somebody to do who's living there? Yeah, I think, again, it's, this is very nuanced. Um, if it's very, very dangerous and you can really jeopardize a lot, including your life, then, of course, I wouldn't pressure that person to come out. You know, there has to be a space. There has to be a time. There has to be a sense of safety. Um, but if you do have the privilege to be able to come out, then I hope that they will consider coming out and that it makes the lives of people like myself much less lonely when there are more of us advocating for these issues. So I really do want to be clear. I don't, have, I don't want to impose an agenda of visibility and outness. It does not apply to everyone in the same way, and we have to be sensitive to that. But at the same time, for individuals like myself, for whom I have the privilege, I have the resources, I have the platform, I have the ability to do this, and then I feel a moral obligation to do it, to give voice to the voiceless, especially for young people. When I was a kid, I wish that there were role models that I could have looked up to. And so it's really important for me to be able to provide that example, especially for the rising generation. All right. All right. And then where do people go to find out more about your work and what you do? Where, where would you like them to go online? My website is achan.net, A-T-S-H-A-N.net. And they're welcome to, to learn more there. All right. All right. Thank you so much. I really do appreciate you spending time with us uh, and coming on. And I try not to make the show about me, but I will tell you that um, not only did uh, I go to Emory like like you're you're teaching at Emory now, but also I um, I didn't come out. I was afraid when I was young. And so I overcompensated and I had all A's and I was student council president and I was in the theater. <laughs> so I'm like, this is me. This is me. Well, well, thank you, Greg, so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much. And that's going to do it for the show. Um, next up, we have Peach State Festival. And once again, to those of you that came over the uh, weekend, and checked out our booth at the Little Five Points Halloween Festival. Uh, Thank you for doing so. And you can always give at WRFG.org so we can keep having programs like this. See you later.